Good morning, church. Good to see you all out here this morning. Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. I titled this sermon, Real Christian Unity, part four. So, you know, we go through uh, whole books of the Bible here, book by book, chapter by chapter. And we've been in Romans 14 now for four sermons. Um, And so... Yep, we're going to continue. So when you're there, please stand if you're physically able as I read the Word of God. Then we'll pray over it, and then we'll get into it. So starting in verse 13 of Romans 14, Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, To someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then... Let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. God, we just thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us this chapter. We thank you for giving us the whole book of Romans. We thank you for giving us the whole Bible. We pray, Lord, that as we dive into your text, that you would illuminate it for us, that you would give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear and hearts that will receive what you have written in your word, Lord. I pray that you would remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess up your word, God, but that it's just explained in, in clarity and, and it's you preaching to your people, Lord, your word. Um, so again, remove me as much as is necessary, Lord. And, um, and Lord, we just pray that we who belong to you, will grow and be transformed by this word, and that we would live in accordance with it and and be more like our Savior Jesus in the way that we live. We pray that those who don't know you will hear your gospel and be saved. And we pray, Lord, in everything that you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, given that this is sermon number four on the subject of Christian unity, I do pray that we're starting to see just how important of a subject this really is. Just to remind us, Jesus prayed for Christian unity. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, praying to the Father, Jesus says this. He says, I pray not only for these, meaning the apostles, he says, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. What does he pray? He says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Part of the world believing that that the Father sent Jesus is that we would be one. Okay, so unity is very important among believers. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul commanded that we make, quote, every effort to maintain unity. In Colossians 3.14, he tells us to, quote, put on love, which is the bond of unity, end quote. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, if you think about it, what Paul does is he hits hard the importance of church unity as he explains why, rather than dividing over our gifts, we're all to use our gifts for a common purpose, for the gospel, to grow the whole body. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, tells the whole church there to be united in mind and to love one another. Now, that is just a small sample of passages all across the Bible that speak of the need for for Christian unity. So given how many times the Bible commands this of the church, we should take it seriously, shouldn't we? And yet, look around the Christian landscape in our land. Christians are not united, but they are divided. In fact, let's just not even think of denominations and all that. Just think of the average local church. In the average individual local church, you have a whole bunch of division as people within the same church divide against each other over foolish things. Such divisions resist love and it breaks unity. That broken unity then damages our gospel witness before the world. Now, apparently, it is real easy for people to divide. It's a human nature thing, unfortunately, right now, since human nature is, is sinful. I mean, just look at how divided the world is. Turn on the news. You'll see how crazy things are on a global scale. And the church, it is not supposed to be this way. And yet, we still struggle with this sin, which is why a chapter like this is written. And so, rather than Paul just commanding unity, like a lot of the other passages do, or rather than just encouraging it, he's actually spending a considerable amount of ink to show us how to be united. In fact, chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, is all about this subject, okay? And what we've seen so far is that, first, if we want the church to be united, then believers must not despise or judge each other over different preferences. Now, key word is preferences. We are supposed to hold each other accountable over sin, not over preferences. Usually what will happen is people will convince themselves that their preferences are biblical, but that's not the case, right? I would guess that 90% of divisions that happen in the local church happen over things that are not even really biblical disagreements. It's just people judging and despising each other over preferences. Well, Paul in the first half of this chapter commands believers to stop that. And then next in verses 13 through 23, where we're at now, he then tells us the next thing that we need to maintain unity is we need to make sure we are not putting stumbling blocks in front of each other that we're not putting stumbling blocks in front of other Christians. That is the point of the text this morning, same as last time, because I did the first half of the text last time. So if you are taking notes, these verses are summed up by this. We must stop putting stumbling blocks before fellow Christians. And the way this is written assumes that we are doing this. Not that we shouldn't do it, but that we are doing it and we need to knock it off. Okay, Paul's writing this chapter as though this is what we do to each other. So we need to stop. Now, how? How do we stop putting stumbling blocks before our fellow believers? Paul tells us how with two principles. First, you need to know what God says about this. Know what God says about it. Second, do what God says about it. Pretty easy, huh? Know what God says about it. Do what God says about it. Last week or last time, it wasn't last week, but last time I was up here, we got through the first principle. We looked at verses 13 through 18 and we saw what God says about this. 
So this morning, we're going to finish the chapter by covering the second principle, which tells us to do what God says about this. So as we continue with the text from last time, I do want to briefly sum up where we are in the book and also sum up what we saw in the first part of this text, right? In the book of Romans as a whole, or in relation to the whole book of Romans, we are now near the end of the book. I mean, we're getting there. I've I've been here for almost two years in this book, and we're getting near the end of it. But we're at the part where Paul actually gets to the whole point of why he wrote this book. Okay, this part is not something he just tacks on at the end. This is the reason he wrote the book. See, normally when churches would have major problems, Paul would write them a letter that would address those problems. Think of 1 Corinthians. Think of Galatians. He's correcting them all throughout those letters for their sins. In Romans, it's not until chapter 14 that he actually starts addressing problems in the church. Why? It's because the problem they were dealing with was a big one. See, this church in Rome used to be united, but now they're falling apart. Why? Simply put, it's because they're failing to love each other. That is why he primed this in chapter 13 with the command and obligation for us to love each other. Because what he brings up now is the evidence that they're failing to love each other. They are failing to imitate Jesus Christ. They are failing to live in light of the gospel that saved them. And that is why he spent the first 11 chapters hitting the gospel in detail. He did not do it to give us a treatise of the gospel. No, he hid it in the detail he did because the gospel is what would solve this problem that he's bringing up now in chapter 14. Okay, 11 chapters hitting it. He reminded them of what the gospel or of what salvation is. He reminded them that Jews, Gentiles, all of us were sinners. Every single one of us. We all deserve to be condemned and go to hell because we are all guilty. We have all sinned against the holy and righteous God that exists. But God so loved the world, right? As as the gospel of John says, that he sent Jesus to die in our place. And in Romans 3, Paul hits that hard. Jesus died in the place of sinners, and he gives us the credit of his own righteousness. He came and lived the perfect life we failed to live. He died the death we deserved to die, and then he rose from the dead on the third day to show his victory over both sin and death. He then ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is sitting right now, serving as the high priest before God on behalf of we who believe on him. Now, Paul's point in all of that is he tells us that everyone who believes on Jesus and turns away from their sins, that person will be saved. Everyone who does that will be saved. In fact, he says they will be justified, meaning that they are declared righteous and forgiven of all their sins. And this is a free gift given by faith. Now, Paul's emphasis throughout this whole letter is that this gift is made available to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, both to the Jew and to the Gentiles. That is how he is articulating that. The Messiah, Jesus, came to save both Jew and Gentile, and both are being saved. That is why Paul spent so much time in his gospel presentation in the first 11 chapters. Notice he keeps saying Jew, Gentile, Jew and Gentile. He keeps showing how it saves both. He keeps showing us how both are one body saved by the one Messiah, And therefore, we are adopted into the family of the one God. The two are made one. Eleven chapters, think about that. They didn't have word processors back then. They had scrolls. Those scrolls cost money. Those scrolls are limited in space. Not a lot of megabytes, if you will, right? You only have so much space on that scroll. And he dedicated eleven chapters worth of ink to that limited scroll, okay, to hit 
the, the, what the gospel is and how it affects both Jews and Gentiles. Then after that, he gives two chapters explaining how the gospel is supposed to change the way we live in general, right? All of that to now get to this very one specific problem in the Church of Rome that needs to be fixed by the gospel. Now, what is that problem? The Jewish and Gentile believers in this church were starting to divide. The Jewish believers still wanted to follow a lot of the Old Testament customs, including keeping the Sabbath and eating only kosher food. The Gentile believers, in contrast, saw that each day was alike, so no need to keep the Sabbath, and they ate all kinds of food. Now, you might say, what's the problem? Well, there would be no problem if both sides were willing to accept these differences and just like not care what the other side is doing with regard to this. But that's not what was happening. The Jewish believers that were keeping these extra rules were judging the Gentiles who didn't, and the Gentiles were despising the Jews who did, right? So you had despising, you had judging. And so Paul made it clear in this case, in this chapter up to this point, he made it clear that objectively the Gentile believers were right, that all days technically are the same, and all food is okay to eat. In light of the coming of Christ, that is just the reality of it. And so he labels those believers the strong brothers. But he also made it clear that there is nothing wrong with Jews keeping the Torah or the law of Moses. Other parts of the New Testament, which I showed three sermons ago, actually <coughs> demonstrate that the New Testament has the expectation that Jewish believers will still keep the law of Moses. Just look at Acts chapter 21. It clears up all doubt about that and what James, the brother of Jesus, says to Paul. Okay, So the thing is, it's not wrong for the Jewish believers to follow the Torah. Paul calls them the weak brother, though, because they're believing if they don't follow the Torah, they're in sin. That's what makes them weak, a hyperactive conscience. Now, a Jew who keeps the law of Moses but knows he doesn't have to is not the weak brother. He's just as strong as the one who doesn't keep it. It's the person who thinks they have to follow these extra rules, and if they don't, they're in sin. That's the weak brother, right? So he's telling us who's weak, who's strong in this case, and regardless, what he's telling us is both groups with their different opinions on these matters of preference, they should be able to coexist. So why aren't they? Well, one, they're judging and despising each other. They need to stop. They need to accept these differences. I mean, at the end of the day, this should not be a big deal. The gospel saves both groups, Jews and Gentiles, and makes them one body. But even though we're one body, and I think here's where the problem comes with. We stop there. We think one body. And so then we think that means uniformity rather than unity. The idea is, well, for one body, then the Jews got to stop being Jews. Or... In the early part of the church, they would say the Gentiles got to stop being Gentiles. And the point is, the Jerusalem Council said, no, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. And Romans 11 made it clear, Jews don't have to become Gentiles. The picture of the church is a tree that has natural branches and wild branches. You should be able to tell the difference. If we all look the same, then we're not showing unity. Because what is unity? Unity is when you have distinct things that are working together as one. Uniformity is when all distinctions gone and it just looks like one. No, unity requires diversity coming together. So you should still have visibly natural branches and visibly wild branches together. And neither side were getting that. They were trying to force each other to conform. So all they had to do was stop, problem would be solved. But if this is so simple, then why are they still dividing? Why are they resisting the unity that the gospel creates? Well, 
historically, to just give the context of what's happening here in this text, is a lot of the food in ancient Rome, in fact, most of it was sacrificed to pagan gods. And so the Jewish believers in Christ simply will not eat it. It's been tainted by paganism, right? They're thinking like, we can't touch that stuff. We're going to have nothing to do with it. They believe that if they did so, it would put them in sin. Now, the Gentile believers disagreed. They said, look, those gods aren't real anyway. And we know that if we pray for this food, it sanctifies it. It it makes it, it set apart. It makes it clean. And so we don't have to worry about this food. Now, these are two very different positions, aren't they? If they were confined to people's private homes, there wouldn't be a problem. But it wasn't confined to the private home. Because here's what the church did every Sunday. Just like we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, because that's how it should be, that's how it always was until recent history, in addition to having the Lord's Supper, they also would have a huge potluck back then called an agape feast or a love feast that they would eat along with the Lord's Supper. So you'd have the Lord's table here and all this other food surrounding it. Hopefully you can see how this would be a problem. If the Gentiles bring a whole bunch of food that Jews can't eat and surround the Lord's table with it, there's a problem. They would think that this food now taints the Lord's Supper. They'd say, now we can't take the Lord's Supper without sinning. But if we don't take the Lord's Supper, we're sinning anyway because we're commanded to take the Lord's Supper. You're putting us in a very hard position. And the Gentiles were telling them, well, too bad. This is how we eat. If you want to partake of the Lord's Supper with us, right, you're just going to have to live with this food that we're bringing. And so this now puts the Jewish believers in a position of either sinning against their own conscience by partaking or just leaving the church, which would then lead to a split. Well, a church split would weaken this church big time. That is why Paul is writing this whole letter to stop that split. He's going to make it clear at the end of chapter 15, he's got plans to go out to Spain. The gospel had not reached that far west yet. The strongest church and the most western church at this point was Rome. They are the only ones who could successfully send him to Spain to get the gospel out beyond where it's reached. If they split and fall apart, then this is going to have a much bigger impact than just what happens in Rome. It affects a broader kingdom perspective. That is why Paul is bringing up what he's bringing here to prevent a split. Now, getting to the first half of this text, what I covered last time, right? The point is, as I said, we're to stop putting stumbling blocks before our fellow Christians. And the first thing we do is we have to know what God says about this. Verses 13 through 18, just to recap, what we saw is Paul said, look, all food's technically clean. There's nothing that's unclean in and of itself, okay? But he does say this. He says, for the person, though, who thinks it's unclean, if that person eats it, he has sinned. Why? Because in his heart, he's willfully doing something that he thinks God forbids. So even things that are not sinful, if you think they're sinful and you go and do them, then you've sinned. So if the Gentile believers are pressuring the Jewish believers to eat food that they thought was sinful they would be causing them to stumble. That's Paul's point. They would be causing them to sin. And I'm going to bring this up again later. Stumble in this chapter means to sin. It does not mean to be offended. Okay, It means to sin. You will cause them to sin. And by the way, this applies to everything or anything, not just food. If somebody thinks playing cards, so they're playing war, one, two, three, four, I declare war. If they think playing cards is a sin, even though it's not, and you pressure them, and they do it, you've made them sin. You've caused them to stumble, right? And that's wrong. 
And here's the problem. If you could get somebody to blatantly sin against God in their mind over their own man-made rules, then you're setting them on a path where they'll also start breaking God's real rules. And then they're going to think it's okay. And you know how sin is. It's a trap. It's a spiral. It sucks you down with it. And you start doing more and more sin. And the bars that you erect for yourself get stronger and stronger. And then you end up trapped. Eventually, people love their sin so much, they either walk away from the faith or they get excommunicated from the church. In either case, the Bible says they're apostates. They're unbelievers. Okay? So, this is a big deal. People come to this chapter and think, oh, Paul did this great gospel presentation, then he just sprinkles liberty on at the end. No, it's all about this. See, eating the food that he's talking about here, it is a real freedom. It's a liberty. Okay, it's something that's not in and of itself sinful. But his point is, if you insist on that liberty to those who think it's wrong, and you pressure them, he says you're using your liberty or your freedom to destroy them. That's the word he uses, not offend them destroy them. Okay, that is serious. That is the exact opposite of love. And if they refuse to give in to your pressure, then you're making it clear they're not welcome at the Lord's table with you. That's also not love. You're telling them, hey, we'd rather you just leave than us have to change our ways on account of you. Again, that's the opposite of love. But that's what was happening. So the church was on a verge of a split. He's telling them to fix it, live in accordance with the gospel. Imitate Jesus who laid himself down for us. Don't value your liberty over your fellow Christian. That's what this is about. So that's all what God says about the subject. Remember, first, we have to know what God says about this. Now we know it. Next principle is we have to do what God says about this. Now that we know what we know, what are we going to do? And we're going to look, we're going to see that in verses 19 through 23. But one last thing I want to say before we we jump into that. Last time I mentioned, and I want to remind us of this, that Paul is putting the entire responsibility of this on the strong believers, not the weak believers. He's putting this on the believers that technically know you're able to eat anything, right? Why? Well, I'm just going to repeat the analogy I gave last time. If you had a society that was a perfect mix of blind people and people who could see, The responsibility of making that society safe for everybody is on the people who can see, not on the blind. Only the people who could see could build the guardrails and the necessary things that make it safe for the blind. The blind can't do that, right? And so if the onus is completely upon the stronger people in that case, what would be wrong would be for those who can see thinking, no, we're going to build it as if everyone can see. It would be wrong for them to say that the blind, they could just go somewhere else. It'd be wrong for them to say, Why do I have to rearrange my life around those who can't see? Why do I have to spend two extra minutes walking around these guardrails every time? I'm not the one who's blind. Okay, and I I hope you can see how ridiculous that sounds. It is the exact same thing if you are unwilling to lay down some of your liberties for the sake of the weaker brother when we gather together as a church. If the Roman church was going to stay together, the brothers who were okay with all the food types need to find a way to do church with those who won't eat certain foods. They have to find a way to accommodate them. They need to set things up in a way that will not cause their brothers to stumble or to leave. And so, with all that reminder and build up and review, now we could get to the text this morning, starting at verse 19. Because if you recall, we already did 13 through 18. So starting in verse 19, Paul wastes no time telling us what we're supposed to do. Look at it. 
He says this. He says, so then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. So what are we supposed to do? He said, pursue what promotes peace. Now, last time when I mentioned peace, because it comes up in verse 17, this is the Hebrew concept of shalom. It doesn't just mean peace as in like stopping conflict. It also means harmony, wholeness. It means restoring things back to a pre-curse, pre-sin, pre-death kind of thing. Like when God brings the new heavens and new earth, shalom is going to be restored. Peace is going to be restored. But we're supposed to be trying to live in accordance with that peace now. Now, if you look back at 17, just really quickly, verse 17, from last time, Paul told us this. He said, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are to serve Christ in light of the kingdom of God. And what he's telling us is the kingdom of God is not about your liberties. When he says the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, he is saying it is not about your liberties. It's not about your freedoms. What is the kingdom of God about? He says it is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is our life in Christ is not about the things you're okay with and the things you're not okay with. It's about telling people about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's about showing people God's righteousness by us living in conformity with it. It's about us joyfully pursuing peace or shalom. And so Paul is bringing us back to that. I bring that up because he first introduces peace in verse 17 and telling us that's what our life is about in Christ. And now in verse 19, he's going to make a command with it. He says, let us pursue what promotes peace. So pursue peace, pursue harmony. Now this word pursue in the Greek actually means to chase after something intensely. This is the word for persecution. Okay, It's the idea of chasing after something to capture it by force, to hunt something down. What that tells you then is if we are supposed to be chasing after peace to capture it, that tells you then that peace is not something that's going to come to you by being passive. See, we often uh, picture peace as passive because that's what the world tries to show you. You just sit down in a pagan position making pagan noises and somehow your mind is at peace. No, that is not peace. Passivity will never bring peace. We live in a world of sin and death where peace or shalom has been broken. It means it is not the natural state. The natural tendency of everything under the curse is to fall apart into greater disharmony. Science has a word for it called entropy. That's just what happens. So if you're passive, that just lets entropy run its course. In other words, your room ain't clean in itself, is it? Right? You have to be intentional about cleaning it and getting your room or your house or whatever in order. If you just do nothing, it's going to fall into disrepair. Now, yes, one day in the future, there will be a new heavens, a new earth, and, and shalom or peace will be standard. It will be normal. You will passively have peace. But in the meantime, peace is unnatural. And this is true even in our hearts. As Romans chapter 7 showed so long ago when we were going through it, is that even though we are redeemed, Paul made it clear that we still have selfish hearts that want to disobey God. We have sinful bodies that want to do the exact opposite of what we know God commands. We have this propensity within us to naturally do what destroys peace. Therefore, the solution can't be passiveness because then you're just going to do those same things. The solution is to chase after peace with everything you've got. It means that peace and securing peace needs to be the top priority of your priority list. It means that you're to throw everything you've got into it. That's what this word pursue means. 
And so, if we're going to pursue peace or harmony in the church, if we're going to chase after it and capture it, then the question is, what does it look like? And by it, I don't mean what does peace look like. I mean, what does pursuing it look like? Okay, because that's what we're being told to do. What does pursuing it look like? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't look like. Tempting your brothers and sisters to sin against their conscience is not chasing after peace. That is not pursuing peace. Demanding that everyone accept your liberty and your rights is not pursuing peace. In fact, doing what you want to do and not considering how it affects other people is being passive. That's just you being you, right? It's simply assuming that your way is everyone else's way and you don't care if you're wrong about that. That's where passiveness leads, okay? It leads to chaos. It tears down peace. Why? Because it's the opposite of love. Love is always action, okay? And I showed that a few sermons ago. Love sacrifices for the sake of others. Love seeks the other person's well-being. Caring only about what you want is selfishness, and I don't think anybody thinks selfishness is love. It just isn't. So if you are to pursue peace with the goal of capturing it, then the way that you do it is by thinking about others. Okay, if we're going to apply this to our liberty, okay, if exercising your liberty during the church gathering is going to pressure others to sin, then don't do it. It's that simple. That's how you pursue peace. Lay that liberty down for the sake of peace. It's not worth the damage it can do to another. That is what it means to pursue peace. Well, Paul's going to add something else in this exhortation. We don't only pursue peace, but look at verse 19 again. He says, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. So the second half tells us to pursue or chase after building each other up. The technical word is edification. Edification just means to build each other up. We are to pursue that for one another. Not just ourselves, but pursue what builds each other up. If I am telling you to do something that you think is sinful, I am not building you up. But instead, if I make sure, if I go out of my way to make sure that no temptation or stumbling block is put before you, then I am protecting you from your weakness and that is building you up, right? That is what it looks like. Let me give an example. The Bible does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. It only forbids drunkenness. It is always a sin to get drunk, but it is not a sin to have a beer or a glass of wine or whatever as long as you don't get drunk. So I could drink wine and it will not defile me. And I'm not going to feel guilty at all when I do it. I'm not tempted to get drunk. Just throw myself under the bus. I haven't been drunk since October of 1996. I've never legally been drunk. I was only 18 then. And so this isn't a problem for me. This isn't a problem for me. I, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not, I'm not tempted by that, right? But if I know there's a few people here who struggle with this, and all it takes is one glass of wine or one beer that's going to knock them off their course and get them back into that slavery that, that has so easily dominated them, then why would I ever drink in front of them? Why would I ever post a picture on social media showing that? And now if I insist on my liberty and say, well, why does your weakness take away my rights? Then I'm tearing you down. I'm not building you up. If I say drunkenness is your problem, not mine, why should I be limited by your bad choices? Then I'm not pursuing peace. All I'm doing is loving myself at your expense. And that is the opposite of what we're supposed to do. So in light of what God says about this, you know, he, he tells us that the liberties are just that, they're freedoms, but for the one who doesn't think so, they're sin, Okay, 
In light of that, he's telling us our marching orders are to pursue shalom or peace and harmony and to pursue building each other up. So the question is, how do we do that? And if Paul ended the text right here, I'm sure we could sit down. We could come up with a list just like I did with the alcohol. We could probably think of a hundred things and come up with them pretty easily. But you know what? Paul's going to make it even easier than that. He's going to tell us two simple things to do, two ways to pursue the peace and building each other up. And if you do those two things, you don't need the list of a hundred things. These two things will guarantee that you're always doing it right. Okay. So what are those two things that, that build up and pursue peace? First, he's going to tell you, just lay down your liberty, right? It's not more important than your fellow Christian. And, and we'll see that in verses 20 and 21. And then second, He's going to tell you, keep your liberty private. That's verses 22 and 23. If you do those two things, you're not going to stumble anyone. You'll never stumble anyone. Not in terms of the biblical definition of stumbling. So let's look to the first of these. Okay, we'll start with verse 20. And in verse 20, he's summing up what he showed us last time, right? So if you look at verse 20, he says, Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. In other words, before Paul tells them to lay down their liberty, which he's going to in the next verse, he's first telling them, hey, I'm just reminding you, your liberties are not sinful. Your freedoms are just that, they're freedoms. So he's conceding to them. He's like, you're right when you say all food is clean. You're right when you say you don't have to keep the Sabbath. you're, You're correct. You Gentiles are right. Okay, that's why he's saying you're the stronger brother. But he's saying do not tear down God's work because of food. Even though you're right, do not tear down God's work because of food. Now, what is God's work? Well, in this case, God's work is your fellow Christian and your church. That is the work of God. Look, every believer is God's work. Think about our salvation. Did we save ourselves? Who worked to save us? God. God sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the one who earned perfect righteousness for us. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for sinners like us. It's his work. It's his resurrection. It's his ascension. It's everything he's done, his high priesthood, that saves the believer. It's also the work of the Holy Spirit that makes us born again. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, which is just a fancy word that means he sets us apart as holy and causes us to start becoming more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit's the one who works that in us. So my point is God is the one who works in us and is saving us. We are the work of God. So if you're putting stumbling blocks in front of the person God is working to save, you're opposing the work of God. Okay, don't tear down God's work. And then the second thing is church unity. If you just go do a word study of unity in the New Testament, we don't create the unity. In fact, the unity is already like built into the church because of Christ's sacrifice and because of the Holy Spirit. We are simply commanded to maintain the unity that he makes the default. What happens is we destroy that default. And so what he's telling us is stop it and maintain that default unity. So a united church is also the work of God. Okay? It's the work of God. And so when God shows the power of his gospel by taking every kind of people from all walks of life, no matter how different they are, and he makes them one body, don't get in the way of that and divide that body. Okay, don't tear down his work, especially over liberties. Okay, we are told to build each other up. What is the opposite of building up? Tearing down. He says, don't do that, right? 
Okay, tearing down is the opposite of peace and harmony. So do not tear down God's work because of food. And I'm telling you, you could replace the word food here with any liberty. Don't tear down your fellow Christian with cards, alcohol, whatever. Don't tear them down. Don't you dare divide the church over your rights and liberties. Now, are your liberties right in and of themselves? Yeah, he says, quote, everything is clean. But he does not leave it there. He continues, he says, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. Or it's wrong to make someone fall by getting him to participate in your liberty when he thinks it's sinful. So, yes, your liberty is fine, but pushing it on people who don't think it's fine is not fine. Your liberty is a gift from God, but you putting your liberties or rights above human beings now turns something that's good into something evil. A gift from God is now being used by you, in this case, to wage war against God's people and God's church, since you are now using that gift to tear down rather than build up. That is what he's getting at here. This is serious stuff. People act like this chapter about liberties is just this small little thing. We don't even know why Paul put it here. No, this is what this is all about. This is the stuff that ruins churches. This is the stuff that does the exact opposite of what the gospel should lead to. So Paul is going to great lengths to show us the gravity of it. Well, after he reminds us of what we know, namely that liberties are fine, but they're not fine for those who think they're sin, he's now going to tell us what to do. Verse 21, lay down that liberty. Look at it. Verse 21, he says, it is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So what's he saying here? He's saying all that food that you know is okay to eat and all that wine that you know is okay to drink, he's like, don't bring them to church. That's really what he's saying here. You have too many brothers and sisters that think those items are tainted in Rome because they were used in in pagan ceremonies. If you drink the wine and eat that meat at the potluck, then they cannot fellowship with you without them committing sin against their conscience. So lay down that liberty. And of course, Paul opens this up not only to meat and wine. He's not just limiting this to the Roman context, but all liberties. Look at it again. He says, it is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything. Can that anything captures everything, right? He says, or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. And please remember, stumble does not mean to offend your brother and sister. This is not talking about offense. This is talking about sin. You want proof? Look at the end of verse 20 again. Paul made it clear that it is wrong to, quote, make someone fall by what he eats, not what you eat, what he eats. That tells you what the stumbling is. The stumbling is the person who thinks a certain food is sinful, but they go ahead and eat it anyway because of your pressure. That is stumbling. It's not that he's offended that you're eating it. It's that he eats it when he thinks it's wrong. That is stumbling. And, And here's the thing. You're the one in this case by pushing your liberty... Paul's saying you're the one who's making him stumble if you're putting your liberty ahead of his spiritual health and well-being. You're tearing him down. But if you pursue peace and if you try to build him up instead, then you're not going to eat that meat in front of him. That way he's not tempted to do the same. Now, Paul says pretty much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 13. He says, therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. 
Now, the context there is radically different. In that case, it's somebody who just converted to Christ. If he sees you eating in a pagan temple, he's going to think, oh, I could worship Jesus and Zeus. And so now he worships false gods and you've destroyed his faith. Okay, different context, but the principle is very similar. Paul's saying either way, if it comes down to it, I would never eat meat again if it means preventing these people from falling into grievous sin. Now, 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians had a hard time with this too. And so in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul starts talking about all sorts of liberties that have nothing to do with food, like his ability to get paid, all that kind of stuff. And then he sums it all up in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verses 22 and 23. So I want to read that because it applies here, right? He says, to the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by every possible, that I may by every possible means save some. Why does he do this? He says, now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. Notice what he said. He will live like the one with the stricter uh, conscience, even though he doesn't have a stricter conscience. When he's around them, he will live like them, okay? His liberty is not even close to being number one to him. He lays down his liberties all the time. And why does he do it? He says, I do it because of the gospel. I do it because of the gospel. Yes, the gospel sets us free from sin. And the gospel gives us a lot of liberties. And yet those liberties do not supersede the gospel that gave them to us in the first place. If you're living for the liberties rather than the gospel, you got it backward. Okay, Paul is saying we should be willing to lay down any liberty for the sake of the gospel. Otherwise, you're valuing the liberties more than the gospel. You've, and also, because what is the great commandment? Love God, number one. Love your neighbor like yourself. Well, if you're putting your liberties first, then you value yourself more than God, and you value yourself more than others. You're violating both of those, right? If your battle cry is, my rights, my rights, my rights, then maybe you don't even know Christ. Instead, your battle cry should be his glory, his glory, his glory. And for his glory, will you lay down your liberty if doing so actually builds up other believers and fosters unity in the church? It's my prayer that we all would, right? And so there's a lot of applications that that could come from this, but we're going to have to save that because we're still just on verse 21. The first, so what we've seen though, is that the first thing we do to pursue peace is we must lay down our liberty. That's what he's saying. It's better just not to do it, right, in front of these folks. Second thing is related to it. He tells you, keep your liberty to yourself. Look at the first part of verse 22. Paul writes this. He says, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That means uh, like you're not taking it to Facebook, Twitter, you're not having the most high-def pictures of your liberty if you know it might stumble someone. Again, not offend them, but stumble them, right? He's saying whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. It's a command. So you know eating pork's okay. A bunch of kosher observant Jewish believers, though, can't attend your potluck if you got pork and shrimp everywhere. So what are you supposed to do? Well, what you're not supposed to do is you're not supposed to say, my rights, my rights. You know what? We want you guys at our church potluck, but if you can't come to see what we see in the scripture, namely that all food is clean, well, then you know what? You can stay home. I should not have to give up my rights because you still think you have to be kosher observant. That's just wrong. That's wrong to have that mentality. That is to place your rights above gospel unity. It is far better not to eat those things at the potluck 
and to be able to have this glorious fellowship that displays the power of the gospel to unite all kinds of different people. That's far more important than your, your ham sandwich. It just is. It is. Okay? Now, if we are not supposed to demand our rights and, and force others to assimilate to our way of things when it's just preferences, then what are we supposed to do? Again, he made it clear. He says, keep it to yourself. What that means is you could eat all the pork and shrimp that you want outside of church. You could have it in your home. You can enjoy it with your fellow believers that share your same conviction throughout the week. I would just add as a caveat, though, don't purposely exclude people. Don't say, hey, let's not let these guys know where we're going because then we can't drink our wine. That's messed up. Again, you're putting your liberty over your brother. But if you just happen to be with people that you know have no issue with this, enjoy. Enjoy because they share your conviction. Okay? So the point is, you can enjoy these things at home, you can enjoy it during the week, but if your impulse is to say, that's not fair, why must I give up what I know is okay for other people, then you're still not getting it. Okay, what did Romans 13 say? Love fulfills the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Okay, the law is summed up, he said, as loving your neighbor as yourself. So think of the golden rule, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Would you want people to disinvite you from fellowship because you have a different opinion on something that ultimately doesn't matter to God? Would you want them to disinvite you? Would you want these people to try to pressure you into changing what you believe and make it a condition of your fellowship with them? Hey, we're all cool with you hanging out with us, but you have to change the way you think, otherwise you are not welcome. Is that what you want somebody to say to you? Would you want people trying to tell your kids that your family traditions are stupid and that your parents should get with the program? And now all of a sudden your kids start rebelling against you in your home. Is that what you would want people doing to you? No. So if we're applying the golden rule and you're going to love others like you love yourself, then you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want somebody to do that to you so you don't do it to them. You want people to respect your opinion. You want people to not pressure you or your family and you want them to still extend the right hand of fellowship to you, right? And if that's what you would want done to you, because that's loving others as you love yourself, then you should go and do likewise, right? rather than be like, my rights, my rights. And even if you have to lay down some of your liberties for others, Paul still reminds you that if you're the stronger brother, he's saying you're the one who's blessed. You're not thinking about it if you don't understand that yet. Look at verse 22, the first part, or the second part of verse 22. He says, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, he's saying, relax. He's saying, you have it good. When you enjoy your liberty, there is no thought in your head that you are doing anything wrong. When you're playing those card games or when you drink that, that wine and not getting drunk and when you dance appropriately, you're enjoying God's blessings. You're, you're not torturing yourself by every second, second guessing what's going on in your mind and what you're doing. Uh, have I crossed a line? Have I sinned? Oh, no. Oh, no. You're not doing that to yourself. You're not overthinking everything you do to the point of anxiety. You know that God approves what you're doing. Right? Good for you. Good for you. Like, look, you guys know I'm Jewish, but you know I eat shrimp and pork and all that. I am not bothered the slightest by it. I love that stuff. Okay? <laughs> I'm not bothered the slightest by it. And I'm glad I'm not bothered by it because I couldn't imagine every time I'm, I'm debating myself for five minutes before I take my first bite. Why would I want to live like that? Right? So when you're the strong brother, you already have a level of blessing that your weak brother does not understand. The weaker brother is reading every label. Does this have gluten? I mean, is it kosher? You know, just kidding on that. But you're reading every labor, label. And by the way, when I'm doing keto, I'm doing the same thing with carbs. 
<laughs> it's like, oh, too many carbs. You know? So the point is, the person who's free, they don't have to worry about that when they're looking at the labels, right? Your weak brother is praying a hundred times a day. Not in like good prayers, but total anxiety, wondering if he's unknowingly broke some command of God. The weaker brother is debating every single thing he does because he has an overactive conscience. That's not a blessing. Do you want to live like that? Some of you might already be living like that. That's not a fun place to be, okay? That's not a blessing. Paul doesn't say the weaker one's blessed. He's saying the person who's blessed is the person who has no issue with his conscience over this. The weaker brother, that person's whole week is a lot harder than yours, is Paul's point. So why not do whatever it takes to make sure at least Sunday is stress-free for that person? They got the rest of the week where they're driving themselves, you know, bananas over this. You can't just give them two hours on a Sunday, or if there's a potluck, three or four hours, you can't give them that stress-free? Of course you can, okay? Of course you can. You have the rest of the week to enjoy your liberties because you're the one who's blessed. You're not condemning yourself by what you approve. Again, as long as we're not talking about sin. Now, if you're like, I approve of adultery, I don't care. You're wrong. Okay, you can't approve of sin. That doesn't change anything. But we are talking specifically about liberties. Yeah, if you approve of something that God doesn't care about, you're good. And you're not debating your conscience all the time. The weaker brother, not so much. Look at what he says in verse 23. He contrasts the weaker brother with your blessing. Okay, you're blessed, but he starts with the word but, which shows you this is a contrast. He says, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that is not from faith is sin. This is a direct contrast to what he said in verse 22. 22, you're blessed because you eat and don't condemn yourself. But he's saying, but this person, the weaker one, stands condemned if he eats. So what he's saying to the Gentiles in Rome is that if what you are doing to the Jewish brother, he's saying this is what you're doing to the Jewish brother. If you're willing or unwilling to remove that non-kosher food from the potluck, this is what you're doing to him. Those Jewish brothers, they want to take the Lord's Supper with you. But man, they're doubting everything they're doing because of what you're doing. And if they partake, now they're condemned. Okay, they're, they're at least condemned in that, in that action, right? They're wrong in what they did. They're guilty. Why are they guilty? Paul lays down a simple principle that allows us to apply this to more than just food. He says, whatever is not from faith is what? Sin. That goes beyond kosher food. So I'll give another example. We're Southern Baptist. There's a lot of Southern Baptists that believe all alcoholic drinks are sin. A lot of the seminaries make you sign a covenant that you won't partake in any alcohol um, when, when you, as long as you're a student in their school. Okay? Not every SBC person believes that, but a lot do, right? We don't. Obviously, I'm going to drink my wine at Passover. Okay? But here's the thing. There's going to be quite a few people out there who are going to think all drinks are sins, period. And so if they end up having a drink because of you, even though they think it's a sin, you've now caused them to sin, right? And, and you might say, well, well, why? You cannot do something in faith if you think it's wrong, right? He says anything not done in faith is sin. If you are doing something that you believe is wrong, you're not acting in faith. You're acting in faithlessness right? That is why something not done in faith is going to be sinful, right? You can't do that. And so because this is the way it is, Paul is only talking to the strong brothers and strong sisters here. He's saying, look, again, you guys are blessed. This is the only time of the week we're asking you to keep your liberty to yourself. Don't even talk about it. Just keep it between you and God. Your brothers are more important. Pursue peace with them. Build them up. 
Build up the church. Strive to maintain unity. And by doing so, you're putting others first. You're showing love. And remember ultimately what this is all about, going back to what Jesus said in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our imitation of Jesus's love for us, but put out towards each other, will help the world believe that Jesus is Lord and that we are his disciples. Okay? That's what it does. When we're united, this only strengthens our gospel witness. So again, it's not my rights, my rights, but it's his glory, his glory. See, for those who are just hard-hearted, they're hearing this and they're still mad. Like, I don't want to have to lay anything down. Okay, and they're unwilling to consider this. I'm just going to say this, you're probably not saved. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, I know that's a bold statement, but consider what John the Apostle says. He says this, he says, we know that we've passed from death to life. In other words, we know we've been saved because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death, meaning they remain unsaved. There's a lot of applications to this. Like if somebody just abandons the church and doesn't go to any church, you can't say they love the brothers, right? Would you say a dad loves his family if he abandons them? No, right? Somebody who just says, yeah, I'm going to stop going to church. Well, they don't love the brothers. And so there's every indication there of what this means about Uh, whether or not they're saved. But we could also apply this to liberties, right? If you won't lay down your rights and your liberties for your brothers and sisters, then you don't love them, right? You don't love them because that's what love is. Love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. And what does he say? Those who do not love their brothers remain in death. So if you're unwilling to sacrifice for your brothers, that means you don't love them. And we see what that passage means. That is why I keep insisting that this chapter is not about cigarettes or tattoos or the stuff that people normally make this about. It's about love. It's about keeping the church united by love. It's about the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And by extension, the principles of this chapter also provide a way forward for racial reconciliation in our country so that Sunday morning is no longer the most segregated two hours of the week. That's horrible. Okay, this also provides the way to fix that. This chapter provides the principles for Chinese, Mexican, Iranian, and Canadian believers all to be able to do church together in one building. This chapter prevents the majority from forcing the minority to assimilate to the majority's culture because it's not about uniformity. It's about unity, right? In fact, this chapter and what it's telling us signals a much stronger message of unity Because when you have a bunch of people who have little in common, but they're closer to each other than blood relatives, it shows that we have something far greater in common, don't we? Jesus Christ. And it shows his power. That is what this chapter is all about. And the way that we're able to facilitate this is by pursuing peace and building each other up. How? Laying down your liberties and keeping your liberties to yourself um, when you got the weaker brothers and sisters around you. Now, I do want to bring this back to the idea of offense because if this chapter is used right, it unifies the church. If this chapter is used wrong, it actually divides the church. And if you change stumbling to offense, you're going to misuse this and actually abuse other believers. It has happened to me, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, but let me just give like a hypothetical first. Somebody might hear that I keep Passover and I'll drink Passover wine in celebration. So that person might come up to me and say, I'm offended that you are still keeping Old Covenant feasts and I'm offended as a Baptist that you drink wine. 
because you have stumbled me with this, you must stop. Paul tells you to lay that down. Telling you that person is wrong. They are offended with me because they disagree, but they are not stumbled. They are not doing something that they think is sinful. That is what stumbling is. Furthermore, they would be telling me to stop doing something that God commanded Israel to do, right? Just because they're offended by it. Sorry, not going to do it. Now, let me take it out of a, a very rare occurrence, like, you know, you know, hating on somebody for keeping Passover. And let me tell you what you're going to see a lot in America if you go out and evangelize. This is a more, uh, uh, a more commonplace version of this. Sometimes we'll go out there. We'll be preaching the gospel. And then there will be a self-professing Christian that's going to come up to us and say, you need to stop. What you were doing is so offensive. You're telling people that they're sinners and that a judgment's coming. And the only way of escape is Jesus. You're turning people off to the gospel. No, no. All you have to do is be a good example to them. And you're like, no, this is how the apostles evangelize. They're going to be like, yeah, but that doesn't work in our culture. I'm stumbled. You need to stop. Are you going to obey that person rather than God? No, but that person is trying to use Romans 14 to get you to stop doing what the Bible says. That is what happens when people turn this into offense rather than stumbling. Now, my real story that really is tragic, I became a Christian at 17 years old. I was on fire from the beginning. It's not often that a a young Jewish boy gives himself to Jesus, and when he does, well, he goes crazy in it, right? And so I was serving my church diligently, my first church. For three years, actually eight years, but at this point, I'd been there three years. I was 20 years old, and at this point in my life, I bought this this Star of David that had a cross in the middle. I love that thing. So I was wearing it everywhere, you know, because it signified really what I am, that you don't stop being a Jew just because you become a Christian, because you believe in the Jewish Messiah. Well, I was told by the elders of my church I had to stop wearing it because it means I'm a Judaizer, not just in the church, but everywhere. And and what sucked with this, I mean, or what was tragic with this, is I wasn't telling anyone to keep Jewish customs. I wasn't even keeping Jewish customs, right? I just wore it because I liked what it symbolized, okay? And so I was active in that church. I taught in Bible studies. They knew what my doctrine was. They knew I wasn't a Judaizer. But the elders said, as long as I keep wearing that, I I cannot do any ministry there. And, And here's what was really just messed up about this, right? I was set to preach my very first sermon ever as a 20-year-old. The one thing that I was convicted about in that church is they did not understand the Trinity. They could not teach the Trinity. They couldn't show it in the Bible if their life depended on it. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to help them with this. So my very first sermon I ever did was on the Trinity. Wrote up the manuscript. It was God-glorifying, Christ-glorifying. Gave it to the preacher. Gave it to the elders. They all liked it. They said, this is great. This will bless the church. But hey, before you go up there, we just want to let you know you can never wear that thing again. You can't. And so they were willing. Like, what if I said no? They wouldn't have let me preach. They would have sacrificed a sermon on the Trinity because they don't want a Jew saying he's a Jew. That's really what it came down to. And I got to say, that's the first time I was really hurt by other believers. I actually wept over it. And I'm not, I don't cry that much. Something's wrong with me probably. Um, but that one, that one did, did get me. It hit me hard. And so then I reach out to my mentor there And you know what he told me? He went straight to Romans 14 and said, you know what? Hey, your weaker brothers stumbled, so you have to take it off and never wear it again. You know, the interesting thing is, I know they're wrong, but that thing is still in my drawer and hasn't been worn since. 
I, I haven't got over it, and maybe I need to. Maybe this will help, therapeutic, I don't know. But, but the thing is, they misused Romans 14, and I had to stop saying what I was, all because they were offended over something they shouldn't be offended about. And so I bring that all up so we know how not to use this chapter, okay? If they did this chapter right, they would say, wait a minute, wear that thing, because then this is going to show that Jews and Gentiles are together in one body. They completely missed the point. They, so wasted opportunity is all I'm saying. So don't let people turn this into offense. They will abuse other believers with it. Okay, it's only about stumbling. So as far as application goes, as we, we wrap up, we are wrapping up. As far as application goes, don't use this chapter the wrong way. Don't confuse being offended with being stumbled. Okay, but the question is then, well, then what's the right way of using it? Well, when it comes to gathering together as a body, don't force people with a minority opinion to do what everyone else does if it goes against their conscience. Now, last time I said, look, it's really hard to find good parallels from the Romans context to our own in America. We really don't have a lot of things like this. So it's hard to think of a legitimate scenario where a bunch of people are going to leave this church because of what we're doing at a potluck you know, or whatever, you know, we just don't have those, those issues. And if people have food allergies, we're always like really careful about that. Like, hey, we don't want anybody being left out. Let's get this uh, low carb section over here, you know, and stuff like that. So we don't really have, I think, big problems with this, you know. And so, so the thing is, it's hard to think of a context. But what I would say is the principle can still be applied outside Sunday morning since we're not having big Sunday morning issues with this, right? If you know someone who has a, a problem with a legitimate liberty, then just keep it to yourself, right? You're the blessed one. You get to keep that liberty throughout the rest of the week uh, for most of the time. But when that person's around, just show a little bit of love. If the person follows you on social media, be careful what you post. Come on. Just think of the other person. Part of me wishes social media was not a thing. You know, we would spare ourselves so much damage, but man, the gossip is so good. That, no, I'm just kidding. It's not. Um, but the thing is, you know, I, I wish we would just be more mindful with, with the social media, right? Let's show a little love towards each other. And also, let's stop being overly concerned with our rights or our liberties. Look, we got them. We're blessed. You don't have to force them on other people. Be more concerned with your fellow Christians' growth. Be more concerned with your church's unity. If we let those principles guide us, we, we'll be all right. And so it's my prayer that we will, as a church here, that we'll love each other, that we'll commit to never placing any stumbling blocks in the way of fellow believers. And so may we know what God says about this, may we do what God says about this, and that's our marching orders. And then, of course, if there's any unbeliever here, I've explained the gospel twice already this morning. Listen, if you're not even in Christ, then none of this even applies to you. You've got a bigger problem than offending somebody or stumbling somebody. You've offended God because you're guilty of sin. And one day you'll stand before him and, and all your sins will be read back to you and you'll realize that you're guilty and that his eternal judgment against you is just, it's right, it's holy, it's righteous. But listen, God is loving and he sent Jesus to live the life we failed to live and to pay the penalty that we would have to pay. If you believe on Jesus, if you just cling to him and his cross, all your sins are forgiven and you get the credit of his perfect life. That is the only way any of us will be saved. It is by faith alone. We believe on Jesus, we turn away from sin, we turn away from any other idol, right, or any idol, period. We turn away from all that. We turn to Christ. We give him our life, and we will be saved. And so if you don't know Jesus today, there's no magic prayer. There's no, like, 
coming up here when we're singing or anything like that. It's just a matter of you telling Jesus, hey, I'm giving myself to you. I'm done with this. I'm done, you know, living for myself. I'm going to live for you. Jesus, you are Lord. And then if you do that, come talk to us right after because we gladly walk you through what the next steps are. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to pray and then we're going to have a baptism. Um, But before the worship team comes up, I'm going to give the communion warning as well right after I pray. And then we'll have one more song. We'll have the elements passed out and uh, we'll have a baptism and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray.